Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our broadcast. It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you would, uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' precious name, and we give you this time, Lord. We ask that you would bless it, anoint it, and use it, Lord, to pierce our hearts and bring about the change you desire. We just give it to you, Lord, and ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, guys, as I said last week, I am very burdened for our nation. I'm sure many of you are as well. You know, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, he said that the closer we got to his return, sin will be rampant everywhere, he said, and the love of many will grow cold. Have you seen the video of the young man who works at a nursing facility? This just came out a couple days ago. Young man who works at a nursing facility somewhere beating and beating with fists, a closed fist, an elderly patient, while he videoed the whole thing to put on his Facebook page. Shocking brutality and uh, cruelty and callousness. Uh, from what I understand, this is not an isolated incident. It's now because loved ones cannot visit their, uh, uh, their family in these nursing homes. Many of them are being abused. There's a lot of good ones, don't get me wrong, but I saw a young woman who worked at one of these facilities. Uh, there was an old man in a walker walking in front of her. I don't know if he got in her way or she, he wasn't moving as fast as she would like, so she pushed him, knocking him to the ground. We see this um, cold-hearted behavior everywhere in our nation today. Uh, most recently, uh, from some governors who callously mandated that COVID-19 positive elderly patients must be placed in nursing homes and in other assisted living facilities where they then infected other elderly patients. Remember now, the elderly were the most susceptible group to this COVID-19 of any group, the elderly. And these governors, Democratic governors, sorry to say it, Democratic governors, uh, in an effort to keep the hospital from being overwhelmed by elderly COVID patients, because I guess they're not that uh, important anymore, had them shifted over to nursing homes and assisted where healthy patients, uh, excuse me, healthy elderly uh, people were living. Uh, knowing that they were the most susceptible, didn't care, stuck them in these nursing homes and assisted living facilities where they infected thousands and thousands of people uh, where most of the COVID deaths have occurred in these nursing homes. This is one of the biggest scandals I have ever seen. I can't get my mind around how governors could be so callous that they would put infected COVID patients among healthy elderly pay, uh, people in these uh, facilities. Uh, the facilities said, we, we're, we can't handle it. We were not set up for it. The governors passed executive orders. They had to, by law, accept these patients. Result was many of them died. I remember seeing several months ago um, in an interview with Victoria, uh, uh, with Virginia Governor Ralph, no Ralph Northam. I think, in fact, he was running for office uh, at that time. But he was being interviewed, and I saw the interview. And um, if you don't know, Ralph Northam is a pediatric uh, neurologist. So he works with kids and babies and so on as a doctor. And he advocated, because he's a big abortion proponent, he advocated in this interview that even after a child is first born, uh, you know, make the child comfortable and then let the doctor and the parents decide if the child is worthy to live. In other words, maybe it's got a defect or something that they might deem uh, is, is, you know, the child is not w worth keeping alive. And so the child, even after, forget abortion, they want to abort up to the moment of, of uh, birth. Now Northam and others are advocating, well, let's let the child even be born and then evaluate. Maybe the child, uh, we find out, is not worthy to, to, to live and so on. And we'll then, I don't know what they plan on doing, how they plan to kill the baby if uh, that's what they decide. Uh, probably just st sticking the child over somewhere and letting it starve to death. I, I can't get my mind around where we are 
as a nation. It's just ama amazing to me. It seems that life has become absolutely meaningless today. Whether you're talking about the very young or the very old or seemingly everyone else in between, life is no longer precious because selfishness abounds and the love of many has grown cold. And we could go on and on, citing story after story of how our society is breaking down and how that more and more evil is being called good and good evil. God said in Isaiah 5 verse 20, you can look it up, God said that this is always a prelude to judgment. When a nation gets so corrupt and so morally inverted, where good is evil and evil is considered good, that nation is on the very precipice of judgment. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said about the time, what would be going on in the time just prior to Jesus Christ's return. In the last days, I'll read to you out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Where Paul said, you, uh, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred, not even life. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. You can go on and read the entire passage. Guys, I feel uh, in many ways like the psalmist felt in Psalm uh, 12 verse 1 where he said, Help, Lord. The godly man ceases. For the faithful, those who are faithful to you and to your word, disappear from among the sons of men. Because of this, I felt compelled to do a series which I've entitled, What's Next for America? What's Next for America? We started this series with a, a message entitled, Looking Back to Move Forward where we focused on the founding of America and our godly heritage uh, as a nation under God and how we were uh, founded and uh, the foundation that uh, our forefathers built our country upon. Last week, we, we continued with part two of this series in a message entitled, If the Foundations Are Destroyed, coming from Psalm 11, verse 3. In that message, we looked at how the devil has been chipping away at the foundation our nation has been built upon, God's word, and how our nation has been crumbling as a result. This morning, I'd like to finish this series with a message I've entitled, The Rebirth of America, as we explore the cure for the moral sickness and social decay that is destroying the nation that we love. So let me just start by saying this, as I already said, in this series, we have been uh, talking about the birth of our nation and the faith of our founding fathers, men who openly declared this nation a place where the gospel could be preached and God would be glorified. That was their intent when they came over here to found this nation. They wanted a nation where uh, Jesus Christ could be glorified, where the gospel could be preached, the word of God would be the foundation that we built our nation upon, and so on. But guys, listen. Even before the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War, you may not know this, but our nation went through some pretty black periods, not unlike what we are seeing in our country going on today. Back then, God saw fit to answer the moral decay in the colonies by raising up two preachers, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Their preaching changed the spiritual direction of America before the Revolutionary War and became the catalyst for what came to be known as the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, um, as a young man and new husband, took over his father-in-law's prestigious church in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Edwards' description of the condition of the young people in Northampton when he first got there 
I think sounds very much like um, the conditions among young people today. He said, and I quote, licentiousness for some years greatly prevailed among the youth of the town. There were many of them very much addicted to night walking, <laughs> uh, hanging out at night and getting into trouble, frequenting taverns and lewd practices wherein some by their example exceedingly corrupted others, end quote. But in 1734, while Edwards was preaching a series of sermons on justification by faith alone, something began to happen. People started getting saved. It started with the youth and then moved to the adults, both young and old. One reporter noted about this period, I'm quoting him, in the spring and summer of 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Oh, Lord, please do it again. It never was so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. Well, distress because so many were under the conviction of God uh, as God was wanting them to get their, life, life, uh, their lives right with him and so on. Now, by 1736, Edwards Church alone had um, 300 new converts, and news of the revival had spread throughout New England. The revival shifted into high gear in the year 1740 when George Whitfield arrived in America. Now, Whitfield had already risen to a place of prominence as one of the key figures in the Wesleyan revivals in England. You know, in those days, of course, evangelists didn't have microphones and sound systems to amplify their voices, but Whitfield didn't need it. God gave to him, a, gifted him with a very powerful voice. In fact, it was more than that, guys. It was a supernatural thing. Uh, there's a story that said when once uh, Whitfield was preaching outside to a group of, I don't know, it was 60 or 70,000 people, uh, everyone could hear him clearly. A reporter went to the very back row and said he could hear clearly the words of Whitfield. He took three steps back from the back row and he couldn't hear Whitfield at all. It was a supernatural thing God was doing, okay? That's what revival is. It's a supernatural thing where God is working, just so you know that. But, um, uh, it, but it, this revival in New England uh, reached its peak in 1741. Uh, it was uh, in July of that year that uh, in, uh, in Enfield, Massachusetts, uh, that Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Go online, Google it, and notice uh, what happened. Incredible story, uh, how God used that message and the anointing of God upon that message was incredible, and so on. But... Um, Guys, in a little over two years, from 1740 to 1742, some 25 to 50,000 people were added to the New England churches. And listen, this was out of a total population of the entire area of around 300,000. That's incredible, all right? Out of a total population of 300,000 in the entire area, 50,000 got saved? Amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, unfortunately, these movements of God don't last forever. And so sadly, by the close of the 1700s, this nation once again seemed headed for disaster. You see, up until that time, thousands of colonial Americans cl uh, clustered, or clustered mostly along the eastern seaboard. But now they began to pull up roots and head west through the Cumberland Gap in search of fortune and, you know, uh, other places to live, and so they began to pull up roots, head west to the Cumberland Gap, but let me just say this, conditions at that time uh, didn't exactly promote spiritual passion. You see, they had all left their communities and their home churches behind them. Remember now, accountability is very essential uh, to the body of Christ, that we, uh, you know, we are our brother's keeper. Cain asked, when, the, when God says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Uh, Cain said, I don't know, lying, he had killed him. Uh, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Of course we are. We're all to look, uh, look after each other, you know? And so once they left the accountability uh, of their communities and their home churches and began to uh, move out into the frontier, well, life became rough, accountability was gone, 
And so the result was morals declined and lawlessness abounded. Uh, one writer describes what it was like this way, and I'm, I'm quoting him. He said, corn liquor flowed freely, gun and rope settled far too many legal disputes. The West was crowded with thieves and murderers with neither courts of law nor public opinion to raise a rebuke, end quote. Another author in writing of this period said, and I quote, Christians who cared about the souls of men and the future of the country saw the peril. If such a spiritual drift and decline should continue among the thousands of settlers already in the Alleghenies and beyond, it would bring down the judgment of God upon the entire young nation. Yet only a thin system of trails and waterways connected the colonies with the vast wilderness behind or beyond the mountains. Humanly speaking, it seemed impossible for godly men to change the course of events, end quote. Well, yes, impossible for men. But God graciously intervened in a mighty way with what is now known as the Second Great Awakening. Most historians pinpoint Kentucky's Logan County about 1799 as the beginning for this revival when several Methodist and Presbyterian preachers joined together to preach the gospel, listen, with a strong emphasis on repentance. Repentance. Soon the word of a mini-revival began to spread as Kentuckians came from miles around. The crowds grew and grew, and soon visitors had to camp out for one, two, and even three nights. I mean, so many people wanted to get together and pray, and preachers felt led to preach. It just, they, they stayed out there for days. Like How would you like to see people today spend three days in church? Because they love God so much, so on fire for the Lord, want to pray and hear his word preached, and they're willing to stick around for three days. That, that's revival, though. It's a supernatural work of God in the hearts of people. But uh, these crowds grew and grew, camping out for one, two, three days. Uh, one author said men chopped down trees and made split log benches to accommodate the crowds, creating, listen, a church in the wilderness. And camp meetings were born. Everything came to a climax, one author said, at a great meeting that took place in Bourbon County's Cane Ridge in August of 1801. It extended over several days and drew, drew crowds estimated as high as 15,000 people. Now, folks, I know today we have the mega churches that have 15,000 people. It's not really uncommon today. But you're talking about areas that were not that populated at a time when you didn't see these kind of crowds. I mean, most churches held 50 or 75 people. Uh, that was the, the average and to see crowds as high as 15,000 people coming out uh, to, uh, to pray and to hear preachers preach the word of God, that was incredible number of people for the small populations in these areas at that time. The revival spread and had a profound effect on the lives and morals of society as thousands were swept through this revival into the kingdom of God and into, lo into local churches uh, more than 10,000 in Kentucky alone uh, in, between the years 1800 and 1803. But if you don't know this, the greatest revival our nation has ever seen to date began in 1857, and its effect was felt for 40 years. Wow. It began in a movement of prayer, listen, and it was sustained by a movement of prayer. History records that the spiritual conditions in the United States deteriorated uh, in the middle of the 19th century as people were making money, as the old saying goes, hand over fist. And as often is the case, their prosperity led to apathy, and the apathy led to apostasy as the people began to turn their backs on God. But a man of prayer, can one man make a difference? Can one woman make a difference? Yeah. One man of prayer named Jeremiah Lanfear, who was himself a stockbroker on Wall Street and who, who was grieved by all the carnality and depravity he saw going on around him, started a prayer meeting in the upper room of the consistory building of the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. 
He had advertised it for several weeks. He made flyers and passed them out everywhere in New York. Uh, the first week, only six people showed up to his prayer meeting, uh, and they came late. He was sitting there by himself for a good while, thinking nobody was going to come. Finally, some steps up the stairs, and six people showed up for this first prayer meeting out of a population of, in New York of one million, okay? But he was a man who just, it was really felt God was in this. And so the next week, there was 14. They prayed earnestly. Following week, there was 23. And then they decided to meet every day. Soon they filled the Dutch Reformed Church and the Methodist Church on John Street and then every public building in downtown New York City. Famed newspaper editor Horace Greeley sent a reporter out, uh, you know, uh, with horse and buggy, riding around to the various prayer meetings to see how many men were praying. In one hour, he was able to get to only 12 prayer meetings, but counted 6,100 men praying. That's just 12 meetings, 6,100 men praying. Then, guys, the spiritual dam burst, and a landslide of prayer began. Soon it seemed that the whole city of New York was shutting down at noon for prayer. And then people started getting converted. They started getting saved, 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread throughout New England, and church bells would sound calling people to prayer at 8 a.m., 12 noon, and at 6 p.m. I mean, prayer was everywhere. The revival went up, and, went up the Hudson and down the Mohawk Rivers, and every church was packed beyond capacity. The Baptists had so many people to baptize, they couldn't get them all into their churches, so they went down to the river, cut a big square in the ice, and baptized people in the icy cold water. That'll fill you with the Spirit, let me tell you. The revival spread through much of the United States. I mean, it spread through the entire United States. In one year, more than a million people, and I believe more than that, were converted. The revival eventually crossed the Atlantic, broke out in North Ireland and Scotland, in Wales and England, and then in South Africa and South India, wherever there were evangelicals, there was revival. There were other preachers used by God during this time to help spark or fan the fires of revival. Men like Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, and later on Billy Sunday. Of course, the last great revival our nation has seen was the Jesus Movement that started back in the 1960s. Um, some historians trace its roots all the way back to the Azusa Street Revival of 1906. It was that revival that gave birth to the Calvary Chapel movement, our church heritage. As you remember, if you're old enough, I am to remember the 60s and how it was a time when um, uh, faith was, was waning. You had a whole uh, population of young people that didn't trust anybody over 30. They were turn, uh, tuning out and turning on. Uh, make love not war was the expression. I mean, people were living in communes and having sex all over the place and taking drugs. And it seemed like that, that whole generation of young people was lost and destined to be uh, destroyed in hell forever. But of course, God in his great mercy began to move and he began to touch young people. And of course, yes, Pastor Chuck Smith was one of the ones he used the most to touch these kids, but there were many other pastors that uh, loved the Lord and God used to touch this whole generation of young people and they started getting saved and today they are missionaries and pastors and evangelists like Greg Laurie and Mike McIntosh and Raul Reese. They all came out of that movement. Dave Rosales, all the guys that in the Calvary movement we're very familiar with. But these men have churches of fifteen to 20,000 people, have gone all over the world preaching the gospel. God has used them incredibly. That was the last great revival we have seen in our nation. Now, I bring all of this up because I believe that our nation is ripe once again for revival. In fact, guys, as I said earlier, I believe that we're standing on the very precipice of judgment. And the only thing that's going to save this nation is another revival and great awakening. The question is, where and how does revival start? Where and how does revival start? In the late 1800s, there was a great evangelist known as Gypsy Smith who traveled around the world twice 
preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in every continent and in many different countries. And wherever he preached, revival broke out. One day a delegation of people from a certain community came to him and said, Reverend Smith, we desperately want to see revival in our area. What can we do? Gypsy Smith said, I will tell you exactly what to do and how to bring it about. He said, go home, uh, go home, lock yourself in your bedroom, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the floor, kneel in that circle and pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival in that circle. Folks, that's always where revival starts, with you, with you, not with your spouse or your neighbor or your co-workers, but with you and with me personally. Remember the famous injunction and promise the Lord gave us in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Please turn there. Please turn to 2 Chronicles 7.14. most of you know it some of you have memorized it listen to what the lord said second chronicles seven fourteen. if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and heal their land now, folks, God has given to us in this verse, I believe, the steps on the road to revival. Let's look at it, okay? Let's look at it quickly. First of all, what we are commanded to do, all right? What we are commanded to do by God. He said, if my people, first of all. Guys, revival is something that happens in the heart of a, of a believer, not an unbeliever. Unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. Only believers are alive in the Spirit, right? But the word itself means to restore or return to consciousness or life to make active or flourishing again. And again, this applies to somebody who has life but um, is kind of in a coma. Look, there's a lot of comatose Christians in the church today who need to be revived and made to flourish again in their walk with God. These are the ones God is directing this uh, Injunction to this promise. He said, first of all, if my people called by my name will humble themselves, humble themselves. Remember what James said in his epistle, chapter four, verse six. He gives God gives more grace. Uh, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will listen. Lift you up. Lift you out of your spiritual sickbed. Lift you out of a place of being uh, comatose in your walk. I mean, you're alive. You're saved, but you're not flourishing. You're not overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, humble yourself. First of all, that's where it begins. If my people will humble themselves. Guys, this involves the acknowledgement of guilt and the confession of sin. Too often times, Christians will sin and then make excuses or uh, justify what they have done or blame somebody else for their actions. This is not going to result in revival in your life. I guarantee you that. We have to acknowledge our guilt, our sin, confess it to God. Uh, listen, Jeremiah, I'm going to have you write these down. Too many to have you turn to. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 to 13. It says, go and proclaim these words towards the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. They were pretty bad, guys. I mean, if you read the history of the northern kingdom, uh, child sacrifice, idolatry rampant. It was incredible how wicked they had become. And here God is still pleading with them. I love you. I don't want to judge and destroy you. Uh, come to me. Come back to me. I won't remain angry forever. Verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity. 
that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms. In other words, they would use these little charms, good luck charms and charms to these alien deities. Um, and you've, that you have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. That's where always where revival begins. It starts with confession of sin as we examine ourselves honestly, uh, not making excuses, but, but, but saying, Lord, I was wrong here. In fact, in 1 John 1 verse 9, John said that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Greek word for confess literally means, means to say the same thing. What does that mean? It means God has said, this is wrong. This behavior is wrong, and I'm doing it. I am doing the very thing God says is wrong. But I'm not justifying it now. I'm not excusing it. I'm confessing it. I acknowledge, Lord, what you said is wrong. I am doing. I'm acknowledging it is wrong. I, I, I acknowledge to you that I am wrong in the way I'm living my life. That's what he means. What do you do then? You pray, God said. You pray. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 59, verses 14 to 16. And tell me if this doesn't sound like our nation today. Isaiah 59, verses 14 to 16. It says, Our courts, our judicial courts, oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who, renou who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. The New King James translates that God was amazed that there was no intercessor. Nobody was praying, even though things were so terrible. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. It says, and I quote, So I sought, God is speaking, so I sought for a man or a woman, among them, who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land. God was going to judge them, but God didn't want to judge them. It's not God's default position, if I could put it that way, to bring judgment. He's a God of mercy. His default setting is to show mercy, but people have to repent if he's going to be able to show them mercy. And so God is saying, your nation is on the precipice of judgment. I'm, I'm going to have to judge you. And I'm amazed that I don't see anybody praying for the nation. Nobody's standing in the gap to make a wall up between me and the nation so that I, I don't destroy it with judgment. Because nobody is praying. No, there's no intercessor. He said, therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. And I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. I had no choice but to bring judgment. Nobody was praying. Nobody was repenting. Nobody was acknowledging their sin. God says, I'm a righteous God. I have to judge sin, but I want to show mercy. That's because I love you. You know, many years ago, a very godly man, General Robert E. Lee, he said something about prayer that I have kept, and I want to share it with you right now. He said, and I quote, Knowing that intercessory prayer is our mightiest weapon, a weapon and the supreme call for all Christians today, I pleadingly urge our people everywhere to pray. Believing that prayer is the greatest contribution, to, uh, contribution that our people can make in this critical hour, you want to do something for your country, there's nothing more important than praying. I mean, he said it back then, and I, I believe it today. Uh, you know, I, I want to do something to help my country. Pray. You pray, okay? I humbly urge that we take time to pray, to really pray, he said. Let there be prayer at sunup, at noonday, at sundown, at midnight. All through the day, let us all pray for our churches. Let us pray for ourselves. Uh, that we may not lose the word concern out of our Christian vocabulary. Let us pray for our nation. Let us pray for those who have never known Jesus Christ and, redeemed, and redeeming love. 
for moral forces everywhere, for our national leaders. Boy, do they need it. Let prayer be our passion. Let prayer be our practice, end quote. Then what? Then seek my face, God said. To seek the face of God is to get his attention to ask for his help. You know, you, those of you who have young children or who have had young children, you know that when your little child wants to get your attention, maybe two or three, um, and you're talking to somebody, you're not looking at them or you're looking at something else, you know, they start, ooh, ooh, they start waving their hand, jumping up and down, making noises. They want your attention. They want you to face them. And this is the idea behind seeking God's face. Look, God cannot look upon sin. That's what he said himself. So when a person or a people turn their back on God and start living in sin, well, God turns his back on them. David said that to Solomon when he coronated him as the new king over uh, Israel. He said, my son Solomon, he said, look, I want to admonish you to serve the Lord your God with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord blesses those who seek him. If you, if you seek him, he'll be found by you. He'll bless you in the nation. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you and the nation. So when a people turn their back on God and start living in sin, because God can't look upon sin, God can't bless that, he turns his back on them. And seeking his face means to once again find favor and fellowship with God. Hosea 5, verses 14 and 15. God said, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Ephraim was the capital of the northern kingdom. Pretty bad. God said, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. So both, both kingdoms, southern and uh, northern and southern, uh, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, were both in bad shape. God said, I'll be like a young lion to the house of Judah. Uh, I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, listen, till, till they acknowledge their offense, their sins. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Sometimes God has got to use lesser judgments to get his people's attention where they are convicted of their sin turn to him and pray um, so that he can spare them from ultimate coming judgment i think we're in this place right now i've said it before let me say it quickly again i believe god is using this covid19 pandemic to get our attention um, a lot of people have died but it could have been much much worse uh, and I believe God is using this to get our attention as a nation because ultimate judgment is coming, which will see the death of millions of people. I'm convinced of that. Um, and God wants to get our attention right now, right now. He said, uh, I'm going to bring some judgment and then I'm going to turn away. Uh, I'm going to go away until, until they acknowledge their sins. Then they're going to seek me because conviction will be upon them. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Hosea 10, verse 12. God said, sow for yourselves. Sow, as what they used to do with the seeds, of course. But this is a metamor uh, 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 allegorical. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up, listen, the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Oh, wow, is it time to seek the Lord for us as a nation. Uh, we don't have time to play games anymore. We, we don't have time to present God a watered-down, worldly Christianity, club-med Christianity, where we enjoy getting together and singing songs and having coffee in church, and, and yet there's no real brokenness. There's no real piercing of the heart with regard to our sin, and we're not confessing anything. Uh, many are just are just uh, justifying uh, the, the sin in their lives and how they run their businesses and so on. Uh, God says, look, it's time to break up the fallow ground of your heart. It's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. It's time to now seek out with all your heart, 
with a broken heart, and then God will reign right. He'll bring revival and a great awakening once again to this nation. Well, to their nation and hopefully to ours. Guys, we need to break up the fallow ground. What does that even mean? Well, it, fallow is a word that means a, a, a neglected, dormant, hard. So when you apply it to soil, it's talking about a piece of, gra- of land that could produce fruit, but it's been left unattended. Nobody has cultivated it. Over the years, the ground has become hard like concrete. You can't plant anything there. Hearts have gotten like that, God is saying. They need to be broken up uh, that they can receive the seed of God's word and begin to flourish again and produce fruit. But but how is that accomplished? How do you break up the fallow heart uh, of, of someone? Well, that's through repentance and God's conviction. And that's what God went on to say. After you've done these other things, then turn from their wicked ways. All right, turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance, guys, repentance. And, and here, a, a little something I, I, I had written in my notes from the last time I taught this. Someone has said, and I'm quoting this author, we must repent for judging the wickedness of our nation, listen, while ignoring the sin in our own homes. And I'll add churches. Let me say it again. You know, a lot of Christians, you know, were very aware of the sinfulness of the nation. Oh, it's terrible, Lord. Oh, it's horrible. Look at our people are living. And we're completely blind to the spiritual state of our churches in our own homes and how much compromise and carnality and, and outright sin is going on in our own homes. David said something in Psalm 100. I think it's Psalm 100. Um, that is the, he, he uh, gives us the truest test of spirituality. It's not in public. Every, anyone can put on a facade in public and act real spiritual. He said, I'm going to walk within my house, privacy of my home, with a pure heart. I'm going to set nothing wicked before my eyes. You know, what you are in private is what you really are as a Christian, not what you are in public. Again, anybody can put the facade on uh, and look like a tremendous spiritual person in public. It's what you are in private when nobody but God is watching. That's what determines who you really are as a Christian. What is repentance? Okay, God says, you know, my people call by my name, meaning to humble themselves, pray, turn from their, seek my face, and then turn from their wicked ways. Repentance. What is repentance? We talked about it a few weeks ago. Let me just say it quickly. Repentance is where you're going down, let's say, the highway. All right? In one direction. We'll call it the highway of life, okay? You're going in one direction with your life. Uh, away from God, okay? Don't realize it. You might be going to church still and taking communion. and being, you, So you think you're right with God. God sees differently. God knows that really your life is not being lived to honor Him. You're doing your own thing, right? At one point, through God's conviction, He gets a hold of your heart. You begin to realize, wait a minute, I'm going in the wrong direction. My life is not being lived uh, to honor God, to obey God. To draw closer to God. I'm moving away from him. And the Holy Spirit gets your heart. And what happens is through conviction you stop. Turn around. If you were driving in a car down the highway. You'd get off the one ramp. Cross over. And come back down the other ramp. Going the opposite direction. That's repentance. It's having a change of mind about the way you're living. And then turning around by God's grace. It's all God's grace. Turning around and start moving in the opposite direction. Toward God. By picking up the Bible, reading what God has said, praying to be able, by God's grace, to live the way he's called you to live. Uh, You start going to church, hanging out with God's people. You don't hang out with your buddies anymore or your uh, girlfriends where you're going to bars and and, and doing things you shouldn't be doing and so on. Um, That's repentance, okay? And remember this, and I feel I need to say this before we we move on. Um, A lot of times people confuse uh, feelings of regret over what they have done with repentance. Uh, I'll let you read 2 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, where Paul the Apostle says, look, don't be deceived, okay? When you do something wrong and you feel lousy about it, you've hurt somebody or you've ripped somebody off, and you say, I, I feel bad about that. You might be prone to think, well, that's repentance, and I'm good with God now because I feel kind of lousy about it. No. He said there is worldly sorrow that doesn't produce any change. But godly sorrow, true repentance, involves change. So you want to make right what you've done, or you want to change the way you're living. 
Now, that's all by God's grace. But true saving faith, uh, the flip side of saving faith is true repentance. They're, they go together. You can't have true repentance without saving faith then. And saving faith will always include true repentance. But the bottom line is, just because you feel sorry that you hurt somebody, you feel lousy about something you did and have regret about it, that doesn't mean anything. you got to get on your knees. And if you're not a Christian, pray to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, repenting, saying, Lord, I was wrong. That was terrible, and I want to make it right if I, uh, as soon as I can, but I want you to forgive me. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired of doing uh, these things and hanging out and getting drunk and having sex and living a very empty life. I'm tired of that kind of life, Lord. I want to come and start moving toward you. I want to draw close to you. The Lord honors that kind of repentance, that declaration of faith. And then after you get saved, he'll give you the grace to make it right if you can and restore what you've stolen and so on. All right. So that is what God commands us to do, to see revival, okay? But what about then what God has promised? This is a conditional promise. Let me read it to you again, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name, here's what we are supposed to do, here's our, our part, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will, God said, hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land. This is a promise. Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles 7.14. This is a promise that implies revival. But it's conditioned on our faithfulness to do our part, as we just talked about, and then God promises to do his part. On January 9th, 1795, in a letter to William Smith, Edmund Burke made a statement that many um, have heard. He said, and I quote, this is a statement for our, 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 okay? He said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men, good women to do nothing. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Oh, I feel bad about what's going on in my country. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, get me out of here. God has said, well, I put you there for a reason. You're a light. Are you going to hide out under a basket called the church? Or are you going to get out there and be a light in public? Are you going to pray? Are you going to examine your own heart? Are you going to, you know, uh, humble yourself and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways? Folks, I don't care who you are as a Christian. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. All of us have carnality in our lives, and we need to examine ourselves honestly. We need to bring our heart before the Lord so that he can, will cleanse us because there is nothing more awesome than a holy instrument in the hands of a holy God. Mark it down. God will not use you for his glory in these last days if you're part of the problem and not part of the solution. If you're walking in carnality and compromise and you don't care what's going on in your own life, uh, then he won't use you. God is looking for, and, and, and the Bible says, well, you know, said, well, people say, well, how do I know God wants to use me? God wants to use every one of his people. He said in the Old Testament, if my people, uh, he said, um, the, eye, the eyes of the two uh, of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are right with him, loyal to him, the Hebrew says, that he might show himself strong through. God wants to use you, but you have to get your heart right with him. You have to confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you, and refill you with his spirit and take you up as a holy instrument in the hands of a holy God to bring his will and his word to the people of this generation? Do you want to be part of the solution or are you going to keep on being part of the problem? Now, I know sometimes people, you know, maybe some of you are thinking, well, um, maybe there's no hope for America. Maybe it's too late, okay? I mean, what if God has already pronounced judgment upon this nation? I will have you turn to these two. First of all, Jeremiah 18, and then put your finger there and look at Joel chapter 2. Uh, 
I read to you, I read you Jeremiah 18 last week. I'm just going to read a, a small portion of it. Okay, again, it's very important. You know, what if God has already pronounced judgment on America? What if there's no hope? Well, listen, Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 7. God said, if I announce, and he's talking to Jeremiah, who was a prophet, to get out there and speak. God said, if I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation, listen, renounces its evil ways, in other words, repents, I will not destroy it as I had planned. Verse 11, therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all, Ju all Judah and Jerusalem, say to them, this is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. In other words, judgment is coming. So turn from your evil ways. Each of you turn and do what is right. Again, God is saying, repent. Judgment is coming. I have no choice but to judge those who are living wickedly. But I don't want to judge you. So repent so that I don't have to bring judgment upon you and your nation. America, listen up, right? Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So terror your heart and not your garments. They had a practice back then when they were upset about something, they would rip their clothes. And, you know, and they, and, they, and they saw the wickedness of the nation and God's saying judgment's coming. Oh, rip the clothes. Guys, I don't want you to rip your clothes. I want you to tear your heart. I want you to, 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 I want you to have conviction in your heart. That's what I want. Tearing the clothes. What does that mean? I want you to tear your heart. In other words, I want you to be broken before me uh, over what's going on. All right? So tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm who knows if he will turn and relent in other words not bring judgment and leave a blessing behind him god is saying look it's time for you to seek me america as a nation it's time for you to break up the fallow ground of your heart it's time for you to seek me with all your heart uh, to realize that I am gracious and merciful. If you tear your heart, in other words, if you allow my conviction to take root and break you and you fall to your face and you confess your sins and repent, you know, it could very well be that I won't bring judgment, but I will turn from that uh, endeavor and leave a blessing behind. And again, guys, as we bring this to a close, I know some of you out there might be thinking, but I'm only one person. I'm only one person. What can I really do to bring change around me? Uh, Everett Hale, Everett Hale, chaplain of the United States Senate and grandnephew of Nathan Hale, uh, who was a Revolutionary War hero. He said this, and I quote, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I should do. And with the help of God, I will do, end quote. I want to close with a prayer for America. A prayer for America. This was delivered on the eve of the 4th of July, 1947, by Peter Marshall. Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the United States Senate. Here's what he said on that day, and I believe it's a prayer that we should all embrace and uh, pray, not verbatim, but the heart of it, the spirit of it, uh, to God today. But he said, and I quote, he said, God of our fathers, whose almighty hand hath made and preserved our nation Grant that our people may understand what, uh, what it is they celebrate tomorrow, 4th of July. May they remember how bitterly our freedom was won, the down payment that was made for it, the installments that have been made since this republic was born, and the price they must yet, that, that must yet be paid for our liberty. 
may freedom be seen. Listen now. Not as the right to do as we please, but as the opportunity to please to do what is right. May our faith be something that is not merely stamped upon our coins, but expressed in our lives. Let us as a nation not be afraid of standing alone for the right of men, rights of men, since we were born that way as the only nation on earth that came into being. He's quoting now our founders for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, end quote. He's absolutely right. We quoted that last week or the week before. He goes on to say, we know that we shall be true to the pilgrim dream when we are true to the God they worshiped. To the extent that America honors thee, wilt thou bless America and keep her true as thou hast kept her free and make her good as thou hast made her rich. Amen. What's next for America? I hope revival. I hope revival. And if you want to get involved in that, pray. Please pray. Gather in prayer groups. Uh, get together Zoom prayer meetings. Begin to pray. It, it could only be, a, you know, 10, 15 minutes with a few people. Pray for our nation. Pray for the 2020 uh, vision for the, outreach, uh, for the Heartland Outreach in July. Pray that God goes before that. Pastor Mike McIntosh is coming out, one of those Jesus people we talked about that got saved uh, in, in the 60s and is now has gone over the world preaching the gospel. He's coming to the Midwest. Not that we need Mike. He's the, you know, Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. I hope he, and pray he uses Mike McIntosh, but he wants to use all of us, all right? But pray that God will go before us and that uh, this July, and I think it's into August, uh, as Mike is going to travel around the entire Midwest, that God would go before him and make the way straight and, and begin to raise up churches uh, that will pray for this outreach and continue to pray beyond this outreach, that God would bring revival that God would begin to work a great work that would start in the Midwest and spread throughout to every corner of our nation, that this would once again be a nation under God, not just because it's stamped on our coins, but it's stamped in our hearts and lived out in our lives. I'd like to have a, um, a, a Zoom prayer meeting this Friday night at 7 o'clock. We will send you out the invitation this week. I like to get the entire. If you can come out, uh, you know I know some of you were afraid of, of the Zoom because it was getting hacked. I think they have uh, updated everything, and uh, and uh, and and we are using all the safeguards that they have put in place to keep that from happening. But I would really love to see you join us seven o'clock this Friday night. Now, among the things we'll be talking about is uh, this week we are trying to finalize um, the use of one of the churches in the area for a month or so until we are allowed to go back into the uh, leisure and fitness center that we usually use for our prayer meeting, uh, excuse me, yes, our prayer meetings, but our Bible studies and, and uh, Sunday uh, uh, um, church services, okay, and all. And I had, I've gotten word that uh, we can probably get back in there early July, but I would rather start meeting face-to-face uh, -face again. So uh, we're targeting May 31st. And uh, I have to finalize things in the next few days. And uh, at this church meeting on this Friday, we'll talk more about it and let you know what's going on. But um, please keep things in prayer. We are at a critical juncture in our nation's history and even in our church's history. And we need God, God's guidance to go forward. And so please keep that in prayer. Not just Calvary Chapel of Grove, but uh, Jesus Christ Church throughout America. And uh, let's, uh, let's end with prayer. Father, we thank you for your great love. And Lord, you're a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, you have brought in our nation's past great revivals and awakenings that have brought this nation back from the precipice of judgment, sending us down uh, a path of spiritual renewal. Lord, we pray for the rebirth of America. We know destruction and judgment is coming, but we pray, Lord, by your grace and through an outpouring of your Holy Spirit that you would cause your people to be revived. 
and go forward into the world, into this country, Lord, with the great commission to, to preach the good news to every person, and that through that you would bring a great awakening to our nation, uh, Lord, that you'd raise up preachers who are godly men who will uh, preach the, your truth, the whole counsel of God in these last days, that, Lord, we would be brought back from the precipice of judgment and, and, and down a, a path of spiritual renewal and rebirth. Lord, we give it to you. We ask you to bless this week and show us your will for where we are supposed to be meeting, hopefully starting next Sunday. And we give it to you, Lord, and just pray you'd guide our church by your spirit in the right paths for us to go. We ask all this now in your precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Tune us in on Friday to be a part of the Zoom prayer meeting. God bless you guys.